Good morning, everyone. I'm Len, one of your elders, and I have the privilege of, to bring God's truth to us this morning. Let's begin with prayer. Oh, our Father, strengthen my feeble mouth and clear my muddled brain so that I can speak your truth this morning with clarity. Oh, Father, we want your truth producing transformed lives by the work of your Spirit and for your glory. Let all else fade away, Father. Turn our eyes on Jesus, we pray in his wonderful name. Amen. This is a sermon that I'm preaching to myself because I feel like I'm such a poor example of the witnesses we're going to see in this passage. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. The story of the triumph of the witnesses. Certainties are anchors that bring stability to our lives. Consider the certainty of gravity. What would happen if we walk out our, our front doors tomorrow morning and we find that gravity decided to take the day off? We'd be looking for anchors, wouldn't we? When we enter times of uncertainty, we long for anchors. While living in Venezuela, I stumbled into a robbery. And when the gunman saw me, he pointed a pistol in my face and started shouting at me. Right then, I, I longed for some certainty that he wasn't going to pull the trigger. As we raise children in a hostile world, we, we could use certainty that they're going to turn out all right. When we hear the word cancer, or struggle with depression, or experience suicide or war, we long for anchors for certainty. Theophilus and the early church needed anchors or certainties for understanding the conflicting developments in the early church. How is it that the messianic hope of Israel became a Gentile reality? Is the, is the Gentile church a heretical offshoot of Israel? Or is it the sovereign plan of God? Should I believe with certainty what I've been taught? Today, we seek, as we seek to follow Christ, we could use certainties also. It's not easy to be a witness for Christ in an antichrist world. If we wish to be bold witnesses, we need some anchors, some strong convictions. In other words, bold witness requires big convictions. So my plan is first to understand the story together and then we'll apply the story. Let's begin by setting the context. What's, what's happened in Acts so far? I'm going to be putting some debated dates with these episodes just to, to try to help us remember that this is actual history that took place. So in April, on April 5th, 33 AD, Jesus rose from the dead after being crucified. During April and May, Jesus appeared many times and explained the story to his apostles. Jesus also commissioned his apostles to be his witnesses, and then he ascended to his Father. On May 24, 33 AD, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to empower his witnesses. The church began in Jerusalem, among Jews, 
in the temple in, and in, with favor with other Jews. Then during the summer of 33 AD, Peter and John heal a lame man, and Peter preaches a super sermon. What an amazing example of God's grace. The Jews had killed their Messiah. But God told them, I'll forgive you. I'll forgive your sin. I'll send the Messiah back to fulfill your hope for the kingdom if you change your mind about him and believe in him. So everything was going so well since the resurrection. But opposition to the witness about Jesus is about to change. Another context that we need to think about is this. There are two levels of meaning when, that must be considered when reading a narrative like Acts. First of all, what did the Jew Peter mean in his testimony before the Jewish judges in 33 AD? Peter is speaking in a very Jewish context, a Jew speaking to Jews about the Jewish hope. We got to listen like a first century Jew would. But there's another level of meaning. What did the Gentile Luke intend to communicate through this episode to mostly Gentile readers in the 60s AD? So let's work through the passage together, the story of the triumph of the witnesses. Luke's narrative of this event can be divided into three scenes. Scene one, the result of the witness. That's verses one through four. Scene two, the trial of the witnesses. That's verses five through 12. Scene three, the choice of the witnesses, verses 13 through 22. Let's take a look at scene one, the result of the witnesses. Now, I'm just going to tell the story in this part to save a little bit of time. I'm not going to read the text here. So after the miracle, Peter, John, and the healed man enter the temple complex. A crowd gathers in Solomon's porch, astonished by the miracle. Peter and John teach the people, possibly for a number of hours, what are they teaching? Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus rose from the dead. Now, the leaders don't like this. They're angry. They're bugged. They're ticked off. Well, who are these leaders? Well, of the list, the Sadducees are the, the most important group. They're the aristocrats, the elite, the rich, the politi politically connected. They're the ultimate authorities in the temple. So what don't they like? Oh, oh, by the way, and theologically, they reject resurrection from the dead. And they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. So what don't they like? Peter and John were proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, but the leaders rejected Jesus as the Messiah. But more importantly, these men are proclaiming Jesus rose from the dead, but the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. So these apostles were rocking the leader's theological boat. As a result, the, the leaders were sad, you see. So the officials detained Peter and John so they could, they could try them the next morning. But the crowd, the crowd loved the teaching, the message, and they believed. A large number responded in faith and were added to the church that was a problem for the Jewish leaders. They couldn't let this go on. So in this opening scene, we have two conflicting responses to the resurrection of Jesus. 
the crowd, yay, living Messiah. The leaders, boo, dead dude. Does that sound familiar at all like today? So the next day, a trial was held to examine the perpetrators of the miracle and the teaching surrounding the miracle. So we enter scene two, the trial of the witnesses in verses 5 through 12. Luke writes in verses 5 through 7, and he presents the judges to us. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. With Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. So who are the judges? These guys are the power class in Jewish society. These are the upper crust. The rulers, the elders, the scribes, and finally the really big guns, the family of the high priest. Annas was the previous high priest, but being the patriarch of the family, he was the real power behind the high priest. Caiaphas is the current high priest. He's, he's the son-in-law of Annas. And the rest of the family, are they grandsons? Altogether, this family controlled the position of high priest uh, for much of the life of Jesus and the early church. For over, over 45 years, this family controlled the high priesthood. So this, is, this hot large group is the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the Jews. And this is the group that tried Jesus. Now they're trying two of Jesus' followers. Now, these powerful men probably thought that this trial was going to be a slam dunk. But what they don't realize is that these simple fishermen had been with Jesus. What was expected to be a simple trial, the sovereign God turned into strong testimony. But what a setup for Peter and John. They'd been, they'd been speaking essentially the gospel to the Jewish crowd, but how could the leaders hear? How could the apostles get an audience with the, the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the Jews? Well, get arrested and go on trial. The sovereign God orchestrated this whole episode, this event, so the apostles could proclaim the gospel to the Jewish leaders. Could God be orchestrating events in our day, in our lives today? Well, put that on the back burner for now. We'll get to that later. So then the leaders ask the perfect lead-in question for the witnesses. The judges ask in verse 7b, by what power or by what name did you do this? What they want to know is this, whose power and authority is behind the miracle and your teaching? Then Peter starts his bold testimony. Luke writes in verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, said to them, now notice first the power behind the answer. It's the Holy Spirit. Here we see the Spirit enabling testimony. Peter will declare without apology what they had done and by whom it was made possible. Peter sees, an, uh, sees the question as an opportunity to declare Jesus directly to the leaders as he recently did to the crowds. So he respect, respectfully replies. He didn't do this, but I need to drink water. <laughs> OK, 
Okay, so he replies, rulers of the people and elders. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. The man who healed the person is Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Messiah, who was killed by you leaders, but God raised from the dead. Here's the crux of the matter, because the resurrection vindicates Jesus' claim as the Messiah. But there's more. Peter goes on in verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was, re was rejected by you, the builders, which has now become the cornerstone. Jesus, we learn that Jesus is the foundation or pinnacle of Jewish hope, and ours also. Peter quotes Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm and one of the most frequently cited Old Testament texts in the New Testament. The point here is that the builders, those Jewish leaders, rejected the most important piece, the piece God elevated to be the cornerstone. What they rejected, God vindicated. Whom they killed, God made the key part of the building, the kingdom. Why is he so important? Peter just keeps rolling. Verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by whom we must be saved. This verse is probably one of the most quoted and cherished verses in the New Testament. It says Jesus is the only hope of salvation for Jews or Gentiles. Such wonderful news that salvation is available, but saved from what? What did Peter mean by salvation? Well, we need to look at the context to answer this question and don't automatically read our concept of salvation into this term spoken 2,000 years ago by a Jew talking to Jews. So when you look back at what Peter warned his, his fellow Jews of in the previous two sermons in chapters 2 and 3, we learn that salvation in this context means being delivered from sin, from the wrath of God, from destruction away from the, the covenant people. Salvation is finding the Messiah and the Lord, entering the Messianic kingdom and getting the Holy Spirit. And while he's speaking to Jews about this Jewish hope, it's the hope for all Gentiles, too. Only through Jesus can we find forgiveness, the Spirit, the kingdom, our true Messiah and Savior, and escape from God's wrath. Jesus is the only Messiah, the only Savior from sin, and the only way to God. No one had better access to God's ways and God's revelations than the Jews did. Yet even they have no hope outside of Jesus. So in scene two, we have two conflicting responses to the importance of Jesus as the Messiah, the only Savior. The apostles, yay, one way. The leaders, boo, no way. Now we enter scene three, the choice of the witnesses. And Luke continues in verses 13 through 18. 
Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we can't deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them together and charged them not to speak to or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So the leaders are faced with a decision. They're in a dilemma. You can hear the buzzing in their beards. On one hand, the leaders feel they must stop this preaching about Jesus. But, but the apostles are bold because they have been with Jesus and it will be difficult to stop them. On the other hand, a popular miracle has occurred and the leaders can't punish the apostles. The people will be up in arms if they do. So they're caught between a rock and a hard place. What can they do? Well, they cave in. Instead of doing what is right or rational in light of the miracle, they do what is expedient for them. So the leaders pass a law. No evangelism in the name of Jesus. It's illegal. Does that sound familiar? You know? But the leaders, they, they, don't get, uh, they didn't get the response that they were hoping for. Luke continues in verses 19 and 20. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. While the leaders responded in self-centered expediency, the apostles respond in Christ-centered boldness. They must preach, but why? Because they had been with Jesus. Because of what they saw and heard in Jesus. They saw Jesus' resurrection. They saw his ascension. They heard the fuller version of the story. It's the story taught by Jesus to the two disciples on the Emmaus Road that caused their hearts to burn. The story that the Messiah or that the mission of their Messiah did not end with his death. That the Messiah's mission included dying for sins, resurrecting, sending his spirit, and starting his new community to church. That these events were all foretold by the prophets and is a legitimate extension of the messianic hope of Israel. In other words, the story didn't end when he died. It was continuing in a grander way. Not only did they hear the fuller version of the story, they also heard Jesus' commission to them to be witnesses to the world. So the apostles had no choice. They were compelled. They did not want to disobey their Jewish leaders. If there was a way to obey their government and God, they'd do it. But if their government's commands vindicate or violated God's orders, they must obey God and continue to proclaiming the good news. 
So in scene three, like the other scenes, we have two conflicting responses. This time to the issue of preaching Jesus. The apostles, yay, preach Jesus. The leaders, boo, don't preach. Does that sound like today? Well, that's the abbreviated Reader's Digest version of the story. So if you have questions about this passage, feel free to ask me. I'd love to talk more about it. But how should we apply this passage? What did Luke intend to accomplish in the life of Theophilus and the early church? Now, this is an important question because the answer to that question indicates the parameters of how we apply the passage to us. I think Luke intended to increase the church's certainty, their conviction, their faith that the events and acts are indeed part of God's plan, orchestrated by him in the power of the Holy Spirit. The extension of the church was true, is true, it's God's plan. But he also intended to bolster their faith by the example of God's bold witnesses who were certain of what they saw, the resurrection, and what they heard, Jesus is the only way, and what they had to do as a result, proclaim Jesus, even in the face of opposition. Time out again. Well, what, what, what would Luke want us to accomplish? What would he want to accomplish in our lives? Wouldn't it be great if Luke was just sitting here and we could ask him, what were you driving at, Luke? Well, I think much like for Theophilus, he would like to bolster our faith in the story of Acts. That these events were indeed God's plan all along and laid the foundation for his new community, the church that we are a part of. But also he'd like us to catch the certainty, the convictions that made the apostles such bold witnesses. What was behind their bold witness? Well, if bold witness requires big convictions, what are some of these convictions that the apostles had that can enable us to be bold witnesses for Christ, even when opposed? Put another way, if bold witness requires burning hearts, what are some logs for the fire that can cause our hearts to burn with conviction? Log one for the fire. Just as God orchestrated the miracle and trial 2,000 years ago, God is sovereignly orchestrating our lives for good works. God sovereignly orchestrated the events around the trial and empowered, excuse me, empowered Peter and John for witness. And God is orchestrating events in our lives for good works such as proclaiming Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 10, Paul writes, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Not only is he preparing our days for good works, he's empowering us to accomplish those good works. But are we watching for those opportunities? Reality is that we could wake up each day with the anticipation that this really is the day the Lord has made. He has orchestrated it for us and empowered us to accomplish good works, including gospel proclamation. So let's camp on God's sovereign orchestration for a minute. In verse 22, Luke wrote this. 
For the man on whom the sign, the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This miracle of healing is described here as a sign. That's a miracle with a point for a purpose beyond just bringing physical healing. This sign miracle points to the council's hard-heartedness and refusal to acknowledge that God had done what God had done through Jesus and the apostles. God is at work, but the leaders are blind to it. The sign miracle also illustrates the saving power of Jesus. Just like that lame Jewish man could not get into the temple without being healed, so Israel and we cannot enter God's kingdom without God's supernatural healing. But why on that particular day? Note how long he'd been lame, over 40 years. How many years did he lay outside the temple? Consider this. Jesus probably walked by him more than once. Perhaps like, like Lazarus, whom Jesus let die so he could resurrect him to God's greater glory, it seems like Jesus did not heal the lame man in preparation for Peter and John to come on the stage and do this miracle at this particular time. So as Jesus walked by him, lying at the gate of the temple, I wondered, did Jesus think, hang in there, bud, your time's coming in a few weeks. Hang in there. God sovereignly orchestrated the timing for great spiritual benefit. So as we struggle with, with problems that seem to go on forever, I believe Jesus is saying to us, hang in there. Your time is coming. God might deliver us by removing the trial for his glory. Or he might deliver us by transforming us in the trial for his glory. If you're struggling with huge life problems, I encourage you to read some books by Johnny Erickson Tata. So log one is God is sovereignly orchestrating our lives. Log two for the fire is Jesus did rise from the dead. If we're going to be bold in our witness to Jesus, we must be certain about this. How certain are you? The most important theological question we can answer is, why believe Jesus rose from the dead? It's the core of our Christian faith. The Apostle Paul wrote, if Christ has not been raised, your, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Or in talking with unbelievers today, the biggest issue is not evolution or suffering or the trustworthiness of the Bible, although those issues are important. The most important issue is the resurrection of Jesus. So are we strongly convinced that Jesus rose from the dead? Would you like some information to bolster your faith? On the back table, I, I put some handouts back there containing some resources concerning the resurrection of Jesus. It includes some websites and also a list of evidences for the resurrection of Jesus. Log three, Jesus is the only way of salvation. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This truth is not popular today, is it? 
According to our culture, the assertion that Jesus is the only way to God seems so narrow-minded, so intolerant, so arrogant. Well, it, it, it is a narrow truth because in reality, no one else has done what Jesus did. A story is told of a little girl who was ashamed of her mother's appearance. For her, for her mother had a big, ugly scar on her face. She looked horrible, and the little girl never wanted her friends to see her mother. One day, the mother asked her, Dear, why are you ashamed of me? The daughter replied, it's a scar on your face. I can't bear to have my friends see you. Then the mother began to tell her the story of the scar. One day when, she, when you were a little girl, dear, I left the house to draw water from the well. And when I looked back, the house was on fire. Hopefully I'm not going to start crying here. Okay. I rushed back into the house and grabbed you, my little baby. The fire was close to engulfing you. And on my way out of the house, one of the burning beams fell, knocked me to the floor, and seared my face for some time because I couldn't get it off me. But I was able to throw you to safety. I just want you to know, darling, that the next time you don't want your friends to see me, the only reason I have the scar is because I love you and I saved your life. Jesus has some scars on his hands, his feet, his side. He got those scars on the cross because he loved us and wanted to save us from hell. No one else did that for us. So is it arrogant or narrow-minded for demanding that people honor? Is, let me put this differently. So is God arrogant or narrow-minded for demanding that people honor his son alone? because he alone died for them. Where is the arrogance? With God, who asks that honor be given where honor is due? Or with people who say, God, you haven't done enough. You owe me more. Why must you be so narrow-minded? Well, we've done three logs on the fire. First, God orchestrated our days for good work. Second, the resurrection of Jesus. Third, Jesus is the only way for salvation. Finally, log four for the fire. The good news must be proclaimed no matter what. How else will people hear the good news unless we tell them? Is it risky? When the luxury cruise ship, the Titanic, sank after hitting an iceberg, Many of the lifeboats designed to carry people to safety were only half full. People who made it to safety in the lifeboats did not want to, re to turn back to pick up people who were in the water drowning. They didn't want to take the risk of panicking people flipping their boat over. So the people who were saved and safe stayed away. Many people did not have to die, but they did. Those folks who were saved didn't want to go back, didn't want to go back because it was risky. Sharing the gospel has risks, the risk of rejection, being made fun of, being shunned or canceled, 
the risk of being asked questions we don't know the answer to. Yes, there are risks. But when someone is dying, saving them is worth the risk. I've mentioned four logs, four convictions to throw on the fire of our hearts. God orchestrating our days for good works. The resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is the only way. The gospel must be proclaimed. But what should we do with these convictions, these logs that can build a fire for being bold witnesses? If you're not part of God's family through faith in Jesus, your next step is to believe with conviction what Peter said about Jesus. What he said can be explained by three R's. Rebellion. You've rebelled against God, gone your own way, putting you under God's condemnation. Rescue. God sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay the penalty for your rebellion, thus opening the way for the restoration of your relationship with God. Three, response. You must change your mind about Jesus and your need of his rescue. Believe in Christ alone as your savior from sin. Now, if you have questions about that, ask someone. We'd love to talk to you about it. One more time. So, if, if by faith in Jesus you've been saved from your sins and adopted into God's family, consider this. Just knowing and agreeing with these convictions does not necessarily create burning hearts. How can, how can, the, how can we stoke the fire in our hearts? Here's just four tips. Meditate on these truths in God's word. Two, pray that God will make these logs burn in your heart. Three, depend upon the spirit to truly convict you of these truths and also enable you for witness. Four, be in community. Be in community around these truths. If we spend all our time in our culture or on the internet, our fires will go out. God made us for community. Jesus has provided us community in the church. But we need more than Sunday morning. If you're not in a community group, please get in one. Well, what's the takeaway? A belief is something you will argue about. But a conviction is something you will die for. Bold witness requires such convictions. Burning hearts require burning convictions. Let's pray. Our Father, I, 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 I fall so short here. But I and, and we confess that our hearts do not burn to be your witnesses. Well, Father, increase the fire of our convictions that you are sovereignly orchestrating our days for good works and that Jesus indeed rose from the dead, and that Jesus truly is the only way of salvation, and that we must proclaim this good news, no matter the cost. Oh, Father, stoke the fire in our hearts to make us bold witnesses for your Son, our Lord. Amen.